I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Shana Tova, Jonathan. Happy New Year to you, Yonit. Was Rosh Hashanah a good break for you? I, I, don't, I don't really know what you do for Rosh Hashanah in Israel. Here it's all synagogue and apple and honey and lunch with relatives. So I don't, are you on the beach? What happens? <laughs> On the beach, we do are the same family gatherings, synagogues, you know, we're the same tribe of people. I think there is a major difference, though, that we will uh, get to in a minute, because you were, I can tell our uh, listeners, you were yes, mocking I, I, my present buying tradition. I was uh, slightly horrified. You sent me a picture... <laughs> And it looked like a sort of English household on December the 24th, where you a had arranged bit. a series of boxes. There was no tree. I'll, I'll give you that. There wasn't a sort of tinsel tree. But presents on Rosh Hashanah, that is heresy and blasphemy no. and, and much See, else. So I disagree. What, what is that about? I w- I'm going to disagree. We give presents. We, I mean Israelis. Not we Jews, obviously, give no. out presents on Rosh Hashanah and on Pesach. We have family gatherings. By the way, every workplace in Israel gives out the gift card slash bottle of wine uh, on Rosh Hashanah and Pesach. These are the occasions. When do you, I mean, when do you think Jews give out gifts, Jonathan? Hanukkah, Hanukkah is when I'm we kidding. do that. Hanukkah is Hanukkah gelt. You get a little bit of money from your So your you don't do grandmother. proper presents for Hanukkah? No. No, so and we do because of obviously our assimilationist timidity. Exactly, in just the face sort of, of and you're Christian you're culture. accusing me of blasphemy by giving because I gave Rosh Hashanah gifts. Back, you're copying back, Christmas, and you said, "Come on, just think about that." So you give out like a lot of presents on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is proper Christmas is proper <laughs> gift giving. Freudian slip there. Hanukkah is proper gift giving. Okay, definitely not Rosh Hashanah, definitely not Pesach. But I can't help but feel slightly economically here. That means at least three times a year, once you roll in birthdays. You, the the Levy children are getting gifted. That is yes. a lot. Uh, and add add motherly gift good guilt that adds some gifts along the way in different yeah. other occasions, like to be shvat or anything. I'm making this up as I go along, but seriously. And now I just I need to tell you that the, the, we have really we this is deep. This is a deep ideological divide between us. I don't know how we could ever no. That's ever a big bridge it. cultural abyss that has opened up. <laughs> I agree between us. That is something of a chasm. I thought that my synagogue point, by the way, was not judgmental at all. It was more. I just my perception was that apart from people who were like religious with a capital R, you didn't really particularly go. You know, one if you're an Israeli, didn't really go to synagogue. I know Yom Kippur, which we're we're going to come on to next week when we have, in fact, a little mini episode for you just ahead of. Our usual time that's going to come on just before the fast on Wednesday. But I know that you know plenty of people might march True. out with the fast. Even if they're secular, they I would thought go people on didn't. People. I thought Israelis didn't really detour to the synagogue unless they are, as I say, capital R religious. Well, it kind of depends uh, who would do that. You you are right in saying that Yom Kippur would be the day that even like the more secular or less religious Israelis would obviously go. Um, so maybe less, but the family gatherings, yes. And and by the way, what I have become a huge expert in these days. I don't know if you do this, if you've done this yet, but the home. Do-it-yourself uh, COVID testing kits. Oh yeah, no, that's so part of our all life the here, yeah. all the guests went through that. I've become quite an expert. I think you should call me the queen of sterile swabs. I've I thinking <laughs> I'm thinking of a second career. Oh, you object to monarchy? I'm sorry. The democratically elected uh, leader of sterile swabs this year. Yes, I'm yes, thinking of a second has career. Got a ring to it. I mean, it is a funny thing about uh, Rosh Hashanah and uh, misunderstandings about it, even between us, Yoni. But uh, but the wide in the wider world. 
only in the last two or three years, I have noticed British institutions, and I quite like it because Americans have been doing it for a long time, doing the kind of little tweet saying Shana Tova to our, you know, our Jewish customers, Happy New Year. But a few of them then do uh, the few emojis, you know, the kind of champagne and sort of streamers, poppers, yep. confetti, kind of New Year's Eve imagery, as if they think Jews are sitting around going 10, 9, <laughs> Eight, seven, you know, happy new year. And so and a couple of people, it's very sweet. People sort of go, Oh, have you, you know, I suppose you must be really hung over from all the celebrations last night. And, you know, it's you how do you say it's you know, actually I drank Manischewitz wine with my father. That is how, you know, hungover I am. Exactly. That's right. It was dipping a piece of apple in a jar of honey. That's as kind yep. of raucous as it gets. Yes, you know. we're the partying um, so, bunch. So they haven't quite sure. got the idea yet. <laughs> Well, I hope they're listening to this, so maybe they'll understand it uh, next year. We could just yeah, hope. They, they they will. Honey cake and honey rather than major spirits exactly. uh, is the occasion. So that is, I suppose, New Year has been what it's all been about, right? The whole country shuts down, not much discussion of anything else where you are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, the good news, if we could call it good, I mean, the numbers just uh, of, of COVID in general here are pretty high, but uh, the R, the infection rate, is lower than one, so we're cautiously optimistic. But of course, the big story everyone was talking about uh, this uh, week is not a festive event at all, but a prison break in Israel. And this is a big story because these are not uh, petty thieves, but high-risk uh, security prisoners who escaped from Gilboa pre- uh, prison in northern Israel. All of them were either accused or convicted in terror activities. And among them, uh, the most famous of them is Zacharias Beatty. He's the former leader of the Al-Aqsa Brigades, uh, which is the a military wing of the Fatah. Now, we're recording this on Thursday, Jonathan. As we speak, a massive manhunt is still underway involving uh, the police and the military and the Shin Bet. Now, this story really uh, reads like a litany of security failings and mishaps and blind spots. It's really breathtaking. I'm not even going to go through the whole thing so as not to take up all of the time of our podcast this week. But they dug a tunnel for months. No one noticed. The prison guard who was supposed to be stationed in the guard tower fell asleep sleep. The architectural blueprint of the prison was online by the firm that actually was uh, involved in the prison's construction. You know, you can go on and on. It really is uh, an amazing story. Of It um, is an amazing story. It is just the kind of story you would think normally would have gone uh, you know, around the world, partly because, as we've talked about before, Israeli news often does uh, get punch above its weight in the world media and people cover all kinds of stories about Israel. Oddly, this one hasn't really uh, caught fire. And I've been trying to wonder why that is. I mean, the details of it are so riveting, the digging out the tunnel with, I'm, I read, a rusty spoon uh, a la um, Tim Robbins in the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, you know, it's got, got those kinds of details about it and being able to do it for so long. And people do normally love escape stories. I, I think the reason why is the thing you said before, which is it's hard to be, if it were sort of burglars and and, and, and thieves, there's a kind of uh, roguish admiration for people who pull off an escape like that, because they are uh, people involved in, in in lethal crimes and national security, uh, uh, they're national security prisoners, and you know murder is among the uh, uh, 
convictions they have. I think people don't know quite what to do with it. They can't just do play it for laughs as a kind of Shawshank redemption on the Mediterranean. You know, it is instead um, a bit more serious. And so the result is it hasn't really got much traction uh, outside Israel itself. That, that's amazing because actually here there's it's the only thing anyone is talking about. And of course, there are two things that you kind of need to, to know. One is that... Um, the issue of Palestinian prisoners obviously seen very differently between Israel and, and the Palestinians. As you said, Israel sees them as terrorists, they're murderers. Um, in the Palestinian Authority, they are heroes, right? As close to being a martyr as you can get, the, the Palestinian Authority uh, funds the prisoners' families. And it's very clear, and this is a very delicate dance, it's clear to both sides that the one thing that can set Palestinian cities ablaze or start a third intifada will be the conditions of these uh, prisoners, uh, in incarcerated in Israel. Their impact is very dramatic on Palestinian society. So Israel has taken all kinds of decisions over the years to, you know, have this kind of quiet inside the prison. So they run their own lives. They have, you know, I can't say autonomy because they're behind bars, but as as much an autonomy that they can have, uh, they'll, they smuggle in cell phones, etc. So this all, because Israel was interested in this situation, that to, to have this kind of uh, quiet and not uh, set the uh, whole situation up uh, in flames, this is part of that, that story. The other thing is, you know, Jonathan, just the the gap, the huge gap that exists in this country between the high tech and the sophistication and the Israeli technology, right? I mean, right this week, doctors had a, a separation, successful separation of conjoined twins with like 3D reality and you can see every blood vessel, right? But the low tech that we always get punched in the gut with these prisoners just digging a tunnel under the prison with no one with noticing with, for months. I mean, with a I would, spoon. I mean, I would, it's like you know, it, it is set up of a joke that you can escape out of a prison. Right. Actually, just uh, to with, make it worse, the, the prison itself was built on pillars. And there was already a subterranean, you know, kind of cavity that they could, it made it very easy for them to dig their way out. I mean, really, this is, this story is, is unbelievable. They could just give them the key and the whole thing would be less humiliating for the Israeli prison service. It um, is an interesting point. I mean, you know, Lahavdil, they're totally different stories. But this point about physical infrastructure, you and I talked at the time about the Mount Meron yep. uh, tragedy. And again, it was just the basics, basic things about ramps and staircases where the infrastructure was just decrepit uh, and not fit for purpose. And and yet this is the same country, as you say, where it is just light years ahead in technology, but people not think about the basics. I, I was wondering about the politics of it, just because my immediate thought on this was, mm, this could be trouble for the Lapid-Bennett government, simply because whenever things like this happen, it will enable the Likud opposition to say, well, this never happened when Bibi was in charge. Netanyahu would never have allowed uh, this to uh, have happened on on his watch. He would have been a tough jailer, tough with the Palestinians, and you know, Lapid and Bennett are asleep, uh, you know, in the in the sort of guardhouse, and their keys are removed from the belt by these canny, cunning prisoners. You know, is, have, have people been making for political sure? Hay out for of sure. This? I mean, Netanyahu's loyalists were, of course, saying that this would never have happened. I mean, just technically speaking, they were digging it for months, so it did happen in his in uh, during his uh, 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 premiership. But no, to be, to, you know, this is going to be. They're going to suffer from this. The Lapid Bennett government is going to suffer for this from this kind of rhetoric their whole time. They're going to be said to be weak on terror, to be weak on the Palestinians. We might get to a story like that later 
here in our program. Yes, th- this is the kind of rhetoric that has uh, uh, sounded the alarm uh, uh, with the Netanyahu loyalists. But to be honest, uh, it's not affecting the government. This is not going to topple the government, right? Uh, it has yet to topple anyone in the Israeli prison service. So this is not what uh, Bennett should be worried about right now. He has a lot of other things to be worried about, quite honestly. So you mentioned tough on terror, and that is going to be in everyone's minds, obviously, right now. As we, you and I speak, we're on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, both of us, uh, you know, were sort of covered those events. I think you very directly, because you got into New York. You and I have been saying before recording how uh, Israelis actually had a bit of a fast track into New York uh, afterwards. I think you, well, I mean, I was just going to say that British journalists couldn't get in for days and days and days, and people had to do elaborate routes round via Jamaica and Canada. But you got in directly. Yeah, I had no idea that it was, I wasn't thinking of it at the time, but El Al was the first. The Israeli airline was the first international uh, airline to have an authorization to fly into JFK because of security uh, regulations, because they knew the Ameri- the uh, administration knew that El Al had such tough um, uh, security uh, protocol that they allowed for El Al flights to come in, I think, two days after the after uh, after the events. Yeah, so there, it was not like that for journalists from elsewhere. But look, uh, I and others and people, all of us, we were writing about it and thinking about it. It was such a huge event at the time. I I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about a a thing which I think perhaps in all the coverage, and there's been acres of coverage of the anniversary, I've not seen much about what this anniversary meant and what 9-11 meant at the time, both for Israel and Jews. And it just struck me thinking about it, that it was significant in in both areas, actually. I mean, I'll just just say something about the sort of Jewish thing about it was that it became, and it's easy to forget how live this was at the time, it it became a site of kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory very, very quickly. There was this claim that Jews were somehow tipped off ahead of 9-11. They were told, don't come into work today, uh, that, that somehow the Mossad, Israel's intelligence, had given them this information. And this was one of those lies that refused to die um, that, and, and lived on for years and years. You would, I, in my own reporting, either in the Middle East or elsewhere, even actually talking to British Muslims, they would very quickly, you would hear this claim, oh, you know, of course, the Jews knew uh, about it in advance uh, and you know they weren't present on the day, to the point where the State Department had to issue a document rebutting this claim, actually specifying the fact that two hundred to four hundred, you know, as many as four hundred Jews, of course, died in a building in New York because <laughs> you know the, that's the demographics of the city, mm-hmm. um, and the uh, it was inevitable that Jews would be you know proportionate to their numbers. Among the dead, what I had forgotten was that there is a claim in the 9/11 Commission report that, in fact, the very first victim of the 9/11 attacks was a young Jew, a 31-year-old Jew by the name of Daniel Lewin, who had been uh, raised uh, in America but had lived in Israel, served actually in the Israel Defense Forces, and he was a passenger on Flight 11, American Airlines Flight 11, the plane that flew into the North Tower, and he was seated in the road just behind, according to the report, Mohammed Atta. And it seems that when Atta went ahead to the cockpit, Lewin tried to stop him. 
not realising there were hijackers behind him who stabbed him to death. And so in some ways, there's a symbolism there that the very first victim of 9-11 was a Jew. And yet, this claim that somehow Jews were exempt because they had advanced knowledge, a terrible lie, a terrible conspiracy theory just went on and on and on in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. The Yediot um, Israel's very popular newspaper, put out today a uh, memorial edition, the exact news, they printed the exact newspaper that they printed uh, on September 12th. And his name appeared uh, as one of the victims on the in the in under the headlines, the Israeli government, first of all, very shocked at the time, Ariel Sharon. By the way, a little bit like the situation we have today, two new administrations, Ariel Sharon just began to be uh, began his uh, tenure in March of 2001, George Bush obviously January 2001, President Bush. No, they didn't really know each other. It was kind of an awkward uh, relationship at the beginning. And then Sharon, who's very shocked at this, and it kind of very quickly turns into this concern he has that he kind of had because George W. Bush was uh, the son of Bush 41 and he was already worried and concerned that he would be, you know, imposed, that a peace process will be imposed on him. He gets really worried about this because of what he thought would happen, right? The United States would go into this coalition with the moderate Arab states. And he puts out a speech that is his most radical speech to date, right? It's called the Czechoslovakia speech that he gives at the beginning of October. He basically says Israel is not going to be Czechoslovakia, you know, not so subtly comparing George Bush to Neville Chamberlain. This happens three weeks after 9-11 and is shocking even to Sharon's own advisors. Yeah. I mean, the thing about it was, you understand how that came about, because there was this fear that Americans would think, oh my God, we've been attacked. We've been attacked because we're too close to Israel and the people who did this uh, don't like Israel. Therefore, let's cut our links mm -hmm. with Israel. Offer them up uh, Israel in the manner of Neville Chamberlain in Czechoslovakia. And maybe that will uh, tame and placate the jihadist beast. This was the sort of fear. That yep. was that scenario. And it's worth remembering why that came about. I mean, you know, uh, and it's fascinating to hear you say that Sharon's own people were attacked. But the reason why that came about was that if you look back at bin Laden's own statements, yep. the kind of why we did it statement, which I, I think, you know, it took some time for that statement to come to light. But in, he set out his reasons and the word, you know, you do a little word search. I've, I've done it. And the word Jew comes up, it's 11 or 12 times. In the text, he constantly says, you know, almost as if to say, look, our beef is not with you per se, so much as the fact that you have allowed the Jews to control your media. They and, you know, of course, Israel. Uh, and he the, the fear that that planted, obviously, you've told us about the Israeli end of it, but at the in the diaspora Jewish end of it was very, very deep because there was suddenly this thought that what if Western countries actually do think well, this is the, the Jews are the source of our misfortune, you know, as the anti-Semites used to say in an earlier period. And they've they've brought this uh, 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 horror down upon us. And what if it drives a wedge, yeah. in, particularly in America, between American Jews and, and, and other Americans? And that was the fear that was around at the time. So Sharon was articulating something that was in the air at the time. 
Right. I mean, I just have to point out, if you just go to history.com today, Jonathan, right? Not a cuckoo conspiracy site, but the his, the, the site of the History Channel, you will see under the category September 11 attacks, the hijackers were allegedly attacking in retaliation for America's support of Israel, right? So if you're a student just writing this paper today, you could actually copy that. But I, I want to return to that Sharon speech. And of course, you have these stories of his aides kind of realizing he wrote this speech by himself pulling him, trying to pull him physically from the podium not to, to, not to uh, give the speech. But after that, you have months and months of Israelis kind of going to the White House, trying to convince Bush's aides of how the Palestinians were supporting 9-11, including a description of merchandise that they brought in from the Palestinian Authority to show, you know, how, uh, how they were celebrating uh, 9-11. And what happened was that very quickly, uh, President Bush put Israel in the good guy column. And he was saying the world is the bad guys and the good guys. Israel is here. We don't need to be, Israel didn't need to explain uh, what fighting terror means, what terror means. And basically, and remember, Israel is at the time in the middle of fighting the Second Intifada and, and bomb blast the height of terror attacks against Israelis. Uh, and basically, Bush, President Bush giving Sharon the carte blanche to do whatever he needs. Uh, he said, just don't hurt Arafat. Do whatever you need to fight terror. Yeah, I mean, it could have gone either way, couldn't it? It was either, oh, you know, our relationship with you, Israel, is the cause of this trouble, or you and I, Israel and uh, the United States, are in the same boat. We are shoulder to shoulder fighting this war on a common enemy mm -hmm. uh, of terrorism, even though actually Palestinian uh, story and the Palestinian conflict is is so different from what was going on uh, around the world. And the trouble partly was conflating them into one whole thing. Terror with a capital T. There was so much misunderstanding and, and sort of, you know, woolly thinking, I think, around that time when you look back on it. But yeah, I mean, it seems as if that, that then forged a tremendous bond between Sharon and Bush, uh, who thought that, you know, they were two leaders in the same kind of boat. I mean, just the last thing I was going to say about this, because it brought back sort of a whole lot of memories, that how that then played out afterwards, it was a very awkward and difficult time, look, for everybody. Um, but there was a particular Jewish dimension to it. And it's partly this thing which, you know, is easy now with some distance to be, you know, mocking of it. But was this claim that the Mossad did it? I would encounter that in my own reporting where Muslims would say, often uh, British Muslims would say to me, you know, there's no way Muslims could have done this. Arabs could have done this. They wouldn't have had the capability. This was an amazing. They actually sort of said that to you? Wow. Yeah, I, I absolutely happened to me. Wow. Yeah, I was reporting in Scotland. I was interviewing a really, you know, a very eminent sort of uh, Muslim doctor who was talking to me about 9-11 and said, you know, I know Muslims. He said it as if mockingly, self-deprecatingly. There's no way Arabs and Muslims could have pulled this off. He said, uh, you know, just just too complicated, too difficult. That's why I think the Israelis did it. Wow! And it was amazing. It was a very and you know it was a very awkward conversation. And and I heard that more than once. Uh, and there was this sort of almost a self hatred in there, which is that look, the Muslims are just not competent enough to do this. So it was a very uncomfortable thing to hear. Uh, that was around. But the other bit was that in, in, in the conflicts that then followed, the 9-11 wars that then followed and the war on terror, you know, that period where the phrase neoconservative entered the language and people would talk about Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and Douglas Fife, these sort of second and third order officials in the US administration who had Jewish names, mm -hmm. rather than Bush Cheney, Rumsfeld, none of whom were Jewish, who were the real drivers of this thing. So it became a narrative very quickly that somehow, you know, this was all a sort of 
I remember a BBC report that did a graphic showing a spider's web of the neoconservatives with Pearl and Wolfowitz and Fyth's faces on it, (laughs) as if to say, you know, this is a kind of Jewish plot somehow. It was a really, there was some ugly stuff that surfaced in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 uh, that in some ways is 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 not e- easy to remember, but now with the twentieth anniversary, it comes back. Wow, I, I I didn't even remember that they did that. Obviously, that elaborate conspiracy saying right that Israel or the Mossad was responsible for this in order to drag the United States into Iraq was what became a conspiracy. in years later, this is so yes, indeed, yeah. so terrible and so offensive. Um, and in fact, and- I remember at the time one of Sharon's advisors then said that he had had meetings with the Americans before 9-11 uh, in which they asked him, you know, who do you rank as the uh, big threats at the moment? Obviously, Iran was top of the list even then. And Iraq, I remember interviewing an Israeli official and saying, and where did you put Iraq? And he went fifth, seventh, <laughs> right? I mean, maybe, in all his conversations seventh. with uh, uh, President Bush, Sharon would always say, Iran, Iran, Iran. Iran, um, Iran, Iran. Not that, I, I, I don't Iraq. think Israelis shed a tear when Saddam Hussein was toppled, right? But it still wasn't there. Uh, it wasn't their priority. Their, so the idea you know, that Mossad did this in order to get the, the, the Americans to do yeah. their bidding by toppling Saddam Hussein, that only works if you think somehow the Americans got the memo wrong. And, you know, what the Israelis were saying was, do this to get Iran. And then somehow in translation, Iran became Iraq. No, it, it, was a, it was a time of a lot of kind of bonkers conspiracy theory. Useful to remember now when we think we're in the age of the conspiracy theory. Even 20 years ago, there was plenty of it. Um, so it's so useful yes, to remember that humanity was always crazy. Point. That's what you're saying. The perspective. We, humanity was always insane. Okay, that's nice. <laughs> a great segue to lead us to our Chutzpah and Mensch uh, awards. Let's start with Mensch. I think we need some good vibes here. Let's do that. And we stay with American Jewry because um, this, I, to me, is an absolute gem. It's a PSA, a public service announcement that has been put together targeting, I think, clearly uh, Orthodox Jewish community to get vaccinated. And it takes the form of a video in which, beautifully shot in black and white, a series of rabbis urge their their congregants, their followers to do the right thing and get vaccinated. My favourite bit, and I'm going to mention it just so that you can listen out for it, is in the in the thickest possible New York accent, one of the rabbis says, as if to say, what's the question here? What is the controversy here? He goes, what's the Shiloh over here? You know, get vaccinated. Anyway, you can hear it. My dear and beloved Hevra, the Rebona Shalom has given us a gift, a very precious gift. It's called the COVID-19 vaccines. Unvaccinated people die. Die. They die. We haven't lived through enough. We should live in the world. It's not to go, but shingadog. For we in the community have to realize that if 99% of doctors say, take the shot, we take the shot. What's the shile over here? Are we playing games? I love this bit. I could listen love. to this forever. Love. I mean, if we weren't already called unholy, I would be suggesting, what's the Shiloh over here? <laughs> as as our quest, as our title, look, it's fantastic. Bits of little smattering. I think that was Yiddish, right? We were hearing some Yiddish yes, in there. Yes, a lot we of Yiddish hear, there. We don't yeah. hear enough of that. Uh, and just fantastically Ashkenazi accented Hebrew as well. I mean, all of it's great, but I think it's good. They're, they're hitting their constituents exactly with the right message. It shows you the numbers are up in a very alarming way in the United States. And, you know, there has been some reluctance in the uh, orthodox Haredi world to get vaccinated and they're 
targeting that message, yeah. I think, brilliantly. Well, I have to say that uh, um, the Israeli in me just wanted to point out that uh, Orthodox, the mainstream Orthodox rabbis in Israel as well wrote uh, this joint letter calling anyone older than uh, 12 to go get vaccinated. They did not, unfortunately, have a nifty video, but they also uh, called for that. So that's uh, that's important. Um, why am I left with chutzpah? Jonathan, you gave me the chutzpah. We're on the cusp of Yom Kippur. I will have exactly. so much to... That's oh, the reason why I, I want to be in the good books before we come to the Day of Judgment okay. and leave the evil <laughs> tongue and evil speech of Lashon Hara to <laughs> well, you. You can, you can diss fine. people. I'm only talking mensch this week. You're, you're such a good friend, Jonathan. So I will um, <laughs> say that our chutzpah, uh, a word of the week, goes, into, goes to a new entry... He's never been on our list uh, uh, before. Naftali Bennett, Israel's new prime minister. Here's the story. Last week, Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, met with Palestinian uh, Authority leader, Mahmoud Abbas. They discussed security issues, monetary issues, a large uh, monetary loan to the Palestinians was coordinated. This was the first meeting of its kind in a very long time. We should note Bennett knew of the meeting. He approved the meeting. He maybe didn't really like the meeting, but he greenlighted it. The minute the meeting becomes public, he is attacked by his own base. Um, and of course, Gantz put out this uh, statement saying that it, there were diplomatic issues as well. So that, you know, caused an uproar in the Israeli right. Now, sources close to the prime minister were quick to say there is no peace process and there will not be a peace process uh, in uh, their comments on this meeting. It's a good thing that the uh, sources didn't say, oh, you meant Mahmoud Abbas. We thought he was going to meet with <laughs> Mendel Abbas, who's our tech guy. Um, but so this is, you know, this is exactly the sort of delicate dance this coalition needs to do, right? I mean, it's indicative of how, you know, Bennett himself is sort of wary of his uh, constituency, Gantz, who is trying to carve out his own, you know, portfolio and say, I'm going to be responsible for the Palestinian issue. This is a very delicate dance. So we will, um, you know, I think it, I think it deserves a, a chutzpah nomination. It definitely does. No, I like that one. And I think there's a little known third category. Always we do chutzpah and mensch. But what about mention? Look at you. With new, I, I, new season, I, new categories. Wow. On, why not? Okay. We're in okay. season mention. two. Just a little mention, because it's in that beautiful little grey area between chutzpah and mention away. This photograph. Will you tell us about the picture? And then I want to say something about what it's what it shows. Okay, so uh, uh the former Prime Minister of the State of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, was sitting in the Knesset last week during the budget vote. You have to physically be there. And he was reading, he likes to read autobiographies and biographies, not a fiction, not a big fiction reader, but this he likes. He was reading the autobiography of the former of former British Prime Minister. David Cameron uh, called for the record. It's actually a copy, a limited edition that was signed by Cameron. So can we pause on that for a second? The name of the, bio, the autobiography, right? I'm just saying. For the record. Right. This is a man who resigned after the referendum on Brexit. You know, just a few alternative titles. One False Move, The Prime Minister's <laughs> Gambit, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I mean, there are all kinds <laughs> of things, but he called it for the record. Okay. I wrecked it all, every last <laughs> bit of it, by David Cameron. Now, I thought it was funny that uh, of all the books that uh, Bibi was photographed reading, it's that one, because they are not similar figures. I mean, yes, they're in the worldly, ex-World Leaders Club, but very, very different. Cameron, it was really a dilettante compared to uh, Netanyahu. You know, I've, Cameron's entire parliamentary career, from being a new MP through to being prime minister, was 15 years total. Um, whereas Netanyahu has been around for absolutely ever, you know, 15 years is, you know, just one of his prime ministerial stints kind of thing. So he was a dilettante. His career was relatively brief, but the big difference is 
just not ideological. I mean, the whole thing about Cameron was that he was sort of chillaxed, you know, he'd be at home with a glass of wine and Netflix. And he just didn't have any big driving ideas. When they asked him, why do you want to be prime minister? He said, because I think I'd be rather good at it. Whereas even Netanyahu's biggest critics will always say he, the man, was kind of driven by not just ideological, but kind of historic purpose, seeing he's the one person who can save the Jewish people from the threats that are kind of biblical in scale. That's how he saw himself. So I suspect the link, the uh, the reason why uh, Netanyahu was reading Cameron's book was not really about the content, not really thinking, you know, that there's things he could learn from him as a politician, but rather I think publishing was what was on his mind. He's thinking, I'm going to do my memoirs, and I just want to see what the competition is like out there. Um, and uh, and so I guess he was flicking through that book, looking, okay, so you do it that way. You don't do it always chronologically. You can do it by theme. You, ha- you know, how many photographs do they have in the middle? That's my, purely a guess, but I think he's thinking about his own memoirs. You can have a look instantly at the photograph. We'll put that, we'll include that in the show notes. You can but- see yourself and may come to your own judgment whether he's doing a <laughs> skim read or a deep deep dive into the Cameron memoir. But the setting of the picture is also fantastic. And there's a story there too. For sure. Um, He is uh, sitting in an isolated chamber in the Knesset because he had just returned uh, uh, from his long vacation. By the way, I think it's the first vacation, real vacation he's taken in years. And he was in Hawaii, not uh, as far as I can judge in the White Lotus Hotel. Um, I want him to be in the White Lotus Hotel. I want Armand (laughs) to have taken against Bibi and decided that he's going to tamper with Bibi's breakfast and somehow sabotage Sarah Netanyahu's, you know, poolside drinks. I think Armand and Bibi is a spin-off of the White Lotus that the world needs. I could could not agree uh, more. He was actually staying uh, on an island owned by... uh, billionaire Larry Ellison, who is one of the witnesses in Netanyahu's trial. But that's a whole different series. Oh, my word. So that's trouble. But it's funny because if he was staying at the White Lotus and went for the full service and offered his clothes, for example, to be laundered, he could then say, I've had my clothes laundered at the White Lotus and the White House. So it would be the natural thing for him to do, because as we know, the Netanyahu's used to take their dirty laundry with them when they went you, to the to Washington. You really and are going walking this risk. You're taking a lot of risks here just before Yom Kippur, my friend. Just say I know. I've just cancelled. Living on the I've edge. I've cancelled all the good stuff. <laughs> I've cancelled all the good stuff. We should have a link to White Lotus in the show notes as well, just in case people don't know who Armand is. But if you oh, do know, ju- just yes, exactly. delight yourself with the thought of him and his staff waiting <laughs> on the Netanyahu's. I prefer that to being. At, um, I think it might the, be better the than Ellison the original Mansion. version of the series, which was pretty good. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, it, it was be. great. I loved it. I loved it. But this could be season two. Talking of season two, this was season two, episode two. So uh, I hope you're enjoying it. Reminder that next week, just before Yom Kippur, we will be back to you with an uh, a pre-fast episode. Um, and when are we when are we doing that, Yoni? When's that, when yes, that going to be available? It's going to be it's going to be available on Wednesday morning. We're usually available on Friday. This is going to be an earlier episode. And we should also remind our listeners: you can find us on the Forward, one of the most influential uh, Jewish American publications, and also on El Al Flights. We want to say our big thank yous to Lior Friedman, the fanciest of executive producers, and to the great uh, team at Keshet, Daniel Romi, Tai Dankner, also to Rom Attic, and to uh, Yair Bashan and Dani Nudelman, Irad Eshel, for original music. Jonathan, I know you have a lot to atone for, so a few days, break from me, and we'll meet again on Wednesday. See you then. Khatimatova and fast well. <laughs> you too. 